0: If you're looking to improve your leadership in a measurable way, go to transformativeprincipal.org mastermind to see if you qualify to join a group of like-minded people who are ready to be the best principals in the country. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This week, I am continuing my interview with Nick Fisher. You are going to love this conversation. We are going to talk about how difficult it is to do the right thing and how it requires some sacrifices and how it's totally worth it to stand up for what is right. And I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, this episode is a little bit longer because we just kept on talking about awesome stuff. So it was good. And I, I hope you enjoy it. I just really enjoyed it myself. So thank you so much for listening. And please share it with somebody who needs some encouragement to do the right thing, even when it's difficult. what I want to do is talk about a the alienation that comes when we do do what's right for our kids. So can we talk a little bit about some of the uh, struggles we'll face if we are willing to stand up and make a stand for the things that are not the status quo in education?
1: Well, sure. I, I think that part of what you need to do when you're dealing with uh, challenging the status quo is get a sense before you walk in the front door as to whether the person to whom you report is likely to support what you want to do. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do yeah. things if, if, you know, if there's questions about it, but I think too often people walk into school or district environments and they said, gee, I was just trying to do the right thing when somebody tells them to stop. And I think that part of what you need to do is not just say, I need a job, any job, but really, particularly when you get to the administrative level, say, am I clear enough about what I believe in to be able to say to my superintendent or my assistant superintendent or whoever it happens to be, look, these are things I think are important in the way of, let's say, effective teaching or dealing with kids' behavior or how we deal with parents. And I just would like to know what your thoughts are about that, that if I do these things in my school, are you willing to support me when there may be parent complaints? I don't think that happens enough uh, when people take jobs. And frankly, we do have choices in terms of the jobs that we take. You know, some people say, well, I've got to get a job. Well, if you have one who says you have to get that, you know, get the job you're taking and two. Are you willing to be mobile enough to go where you can have the latitude to do what you want to do? What I got to by the, you know, in, in the latter phases of my uh, superintendency career, which um, I, you know, I, I still look around for urban possibilities, is I basically would go into a meeting with the school board or the school committee and say, here's what I see as the situation in your district or in this district. Here's what I think needs to be done. Is that something you're willing to do or support? Now, some cases, what can happen is the board can totally change on you, which it has. And in other cases, the superintendent may leave. And at that point, you have to make a decision. I think the other thing you need to do is really sit down and have a conversation with your spouse or your significant other and say, look, the way I operate is not necessarily going to lead to stability in one position. We may need to move. Uh, My wife and I had a running joke. Her dad was a Lutheran minister. And she said, I don't want to marry a minister because I was moving every two to three years. And so she married (laughs) me. And she ended up up moving 18 times. And so, you know, and as we've talked about it, she recently said to me she wouldn't change it for the world and in part because it gave her a range of experiences that she never would have had if she stayed in one place. But I think the most important thing to do is, one, start with knowing what you believe in and being able to say to yourself, what does it look like if I'm doing this in a school? The second is to talk to your supervisor, whoever that happens to be, and say, look, this is what I believe. Is this something you're prepared to be supportive of? The third is talk to your significant other or your spouse and say, understanding that this is who I am, what can you live with? What are you going to be able to be supportive of? I think that kids, to be honest, are amazingly durable and flexible, and we've been through uh, some pretty traumatic situations, the worst of which was a situation where I took somebody to a termination hearing as a principal and uh, went through some death threats. But there are times when you need to do that. I mean, when you have to do the right thing, uh, because this particular principal was taking little girls home during the week without their parents' permission. And uh, there, what I think you need to do in, the, in terms of what you do in a school is also think through how do you communicate the difference between what you want people to do and what they're already doing. Because oftentimes what people will say is, well, I'm already doing that. And unless you can show them the difference, you're, you're going to have real problems. And the other thing is, it, it's not just enough to say to people, what you're doing is wrong. What you have to be able to say to them is, okay, that's one way of doing it, but I want you to do this differently.
0: So I'm I'm really thoughtful about about what you've said and and I want to go back just a little bit to the what are the right questions to ask a supervisor and and are you mobile enough to find the right places to work? It it feels like as a superintendent and maybe I'm projecting here but it feels like as a superintendent you're already you've arrived and you can be more critical about where you work. Can you help my thinking on that? Is it any easier as a superintendent or is that just as important as a school building principal to make sure you know what the supervisor will support?
1: I think both are very similar. There are many, many people in jobs around the country, and I don't fault people for doing this, who basically say, what's important to me is stability for my family, and I'm just going to go with the flow. And that's fine. Uh, I mean, that's what people believe that's good. Or they'll say, well, I'll do what I can, but I don't want to rock the boat too much so that I end up having to look for another job. I think the superintendency can be very volatile uh, depending on where you are. And I think, for example, in the environment of state testing, it's become even more volatile because uh, having been involved in the creation of one of the most controversial and some perceive one of the more effective state tests, the Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment Test, when I was associate commissioner there, there is a lot of controversy about what you do, how you measure kids' skills, and how much weight that measurement should have. What a lot of people don't understand is why these state tests have come to be. And then also uh, they, they wonder, well, if I'm a professional, why can't I just do what I want to do? Um, and there are lots of responses to that. One of which is that in too many situations, particularly for low-income kids, kids are graduating from high school functionally illiterate, and they they lack literacy in both language and math. And to me, that's totally unacceptable. And in so, if you come out and what was happening is legislators were really starting to get complaints, saying, "Well, this kid is." is not employable. They can't read and write. And people would say, well, that's their fault. No, it's not their fault. What we need to do is to make sure that before we essentially give a certification of preparation, which is a high what a high school diploma should be, we should be prepared to back it up by saying this kid is ready to go out and either be employed or go to technical school or go into the military, go into community college, get a job, whatever they happen to choose and too often, we've got too many kids who are not. That's really where the state testing process came from because legislators are saying, if I'm gonna contribute X amount of money into your system and or you're asking for more, I want to know that I'm getting some bang for my buck. Does that mean that these um, one picture tests are you know, the beginning and ending of all? No, but what it means is it's political reality. So I think coming back to where we started, you have to know what the stakes are moving in and you have to decide whether you're willing to live with those. And that applies to the principalship, the superintendency, uh, the commissionership or whatever role you're you're moving into.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things that is concerning is that if I move around a lot, then it's going to look bad on my resume and people are going to think that I can't can't hold down a job or or whatever. What is your response to those who who have that fear?
1: Well, if if you look at urban superintendents in the lower forty eight, the average tenure is two to three years or less. If you if you're looking at the principalship, it's different. People tend to stay longer in one place. Although in larger urban districts or even in larger uh, rural or suburban districts, like uh, in Colorado, in Jefferson County, Colorado, which is a very large district. If you move around among schools, the question is why? Did you move because they didn't like your performance, or did you move because people thought you were so good that you could be the person who could help change a school around? So the reasons for moving vary. And I think part of what you have to think about is what is the reason that led to your changing and what impact might that have on your perceived uh, acceptability or desirability? And it just it's it's not just moving. It's why you moved. It's what kind of references you're likely to get both in writing and over the phone. Uh, some people don't realize that the reference they get in writing may not be what an individual says over the phone. So I think you need to understand what the implications are. In some cases, leaving a situation can be a badge of honor because you refuse to do the things that, frankly, most people would not do. Um, In other cases, you leave because there's a great new opportunity. So I don't think there's one answer to your question
0: well and i i think that that's important because there's there really isn't one answer to the question and and it does matter so you you do have to be able to weigh those things and and determine what you stand for and and how you want to tell the story of you leaving and how you tell the story will be different probably than how the the previous supervisor tells the story and you know i Having had those conversations with my right now current superintendent early on, knowing that he was going to support me and now being in a position where I'm leaving that district and knowing that he's had my back the whole time and he continues to have my back, that is a lot different than other situations where – I haven't had the support that I thought that I did. So if we're if we're struggling or we feel like we don't have that support from our leadership, what do we do in that situation, Nick?
1: I think what you do is, it has several parts to it. One is you have to ask yourself, why are you staying if you're struggling? Um, and again, there, it's very important to kind of sit down and talk with a friend who you trust, who's not going to throw the conversation out into the public winds and say, I want to talk to you about what I'm thinking and feeling about what I'm doing. And I want you to be very honest with me about what you're hearing. So get candid feedback about how you're portraying yourself. I think a second very important thing to do is to talk to your spouse or significant other and say, well, what do you think? You know, did I blow this thing up? Did I do the right thing? Did I, have I been sharing enough with you about what's going on? And then in terms of the more difficult conversation may be to go in with the supervisor with whom you're not getting along. And uh, and this is optional. I'm not saying everybody should do this and say, look, I think we we have some different views of how things should be done. And I'd really like to know how you see me and just take it for what it is. Don't get into a debate about it. Just Take the feedback for what it is. And then if you and your spouse um, or significant other agree, yeah, it's time to move on, then you start looking. One of the things I would do at the principal level is when you go in, if you get to the final interview point and the person says, well, I'm really considering hiring you, are there any skeletons in your closet or words to that effect? Be honest with them. Don't try to hide things because the things that will really blow you up, as it were, they can make it very difficult. And so somebody says, why didn't you ever tell me about that? And as difficult as it may be, my view has become you're much better off being honest with the person you're going to work with than trying to avoid those realities.
0: That is so true. You know, I I did exactly what you are suggesting in a previous position where I just felt like I wasn't getting the feedback that I needed to be successful in that district. And so I went to a former principal who was at the district level supervising other principals and I had that candid conversation. I said, basically, how do other people perceive me? And he said, well, that's an interesting question give me a couple of days and and then let's talk and i i told him i said look telling me giving me fluff is not going to help me out this is what i'm perceiving and i need to know if i'm right or not and he didn't give me any fluff and he told me straight up what the the issues were how i was being perceived and that was really difficult and scary and uncomfortable to do And I didn't like the process, but I appreciated it very much afterward when I had very good closure to say, I'm not fitting into the culture here and it's time for me to move on someplace else. Exactly. It made it so much easier that I I couldn't even believe it. And so... If you are in that position, I very much encourage you to find someone that you can trust who one's not going to air it out and two is actually going to tell you honestly, because I had asked others and they just said, oh yeah, you're great. You're doing a great job. No big deal. But I wasn't getting the principal positions that I was seeking. And so I knew there was something else. And once he was able to tell me, I took that and used that to help craft my story about what I believed and then also use that to in future interviews to say, here's what you're getting when you get me and here's how I'm working on that. Here's how I'm getting better. But as a supervisor, you need to know what you're getting and no supervisor thinks that they are hiring the perfect person. We all realize that everybody has flaws or at least we should, and we need to recognize those and, and deal with that. And sometimes that's really scary for us to be vulnerable about what our weaknesses may be. And even if they're not weaknesses, just parts of us that don't mesh well with the culture that's there.
1: Absolutely. And I think the same thing applies when you're working with teachers who whose values and whose approach may be totally at odds with what you believe in. Being constructively, uh, giving people constructive feedback is not always easy, but I think it's very important.
0: Yeah. Do you have any advice for giving that constructive feedback when, you know, somebody's Doing something at odds with what you believe and and how to how to set that up to be successful when it's almost guaranteed to be controversial or headbutting or or something like that. What are some of your strategies that you use to to make that as good as it can be when it's always difficult?
1: Well, the first thing I do is I do not use the statement, well, I don't want you to take this personally. I think that's insulting to people. If you are in our profession. If you didn't take what you do personally, why are you there? Everybody puts out a lot of personal effort and time and energy into whatever they do, whether I agree or disagree with it. And to me, the statement of don't take this personally or nothing personal or please don't take offense is baloney because what you may be saying to somebody could hurt them. Uh, meaning it, it's not necessary, it's not physical hurt, but people may feel hurt or they may feel angry about what you're saying because it's not the way they see themselves. And so I, I think what's very important to do is to say, look, I want to share some feedback with you about what I see happening. And then I'd like to hear your version of not what you think of what I'm saying but your version of what you see yourself doing. And you may, frankly, want to start out with, all right, in this situation in your classroom or in this situation interacting with staff or parents or students, tell me what you see going on and tell me whether you perceive you've been successful or you wanted to do things differently. When you do that, you do something extremely important, which is to set up what I call an active listening conversation. Too often people in these difficult conversations feel like there's nobody listening to me. You're not hearing what I'm saying. And there's real value to that statement because too often we end a statement with, you know what I mean? And you know what? I have no idea what you mean often. Uh, Or let's get to some clarification about that. So rather than saying, you know what I mean, say, well, no, I'm not totally clear or let me give you some feedback about what I think you're saying or what I hear you saying. And you tell me whether I'm hearing you accurately. That simple statement of you tell me whether I'm hearing you accurately has tremendous value for people, particularly in very difficult situations where people perceive that you're telling them that they're doing the wrong thing or they're not acting professionally or they're not effective. People feel like, well, you know, Hey, Do you have any idea of what I'm doing? When you give them feedback about saying, here's what I hear you saying, here's what I see you doing, tell me whether I'm accurately perceiving either. That gives the chance for interaction. Too often in these conversations, that doesn't happen. That's one set of things that's very important. I think another is, particularly with teaching behavior, to be able to distinguish between what a person is doing and what you would like to see them doing differently. It is not enough just to say you're wrong. It is not enough just to say, no, that's not effective. And the person saying, "Uh, and what do you want me to do? Or that's what I learned. You know, that's what my best teacher did. And I think it's then important to say, look, yeah, I understand that. And I can see why you think it's effective. But let me talk about a different way of doing it. Because I believe that what you're doing is not having the effect that you want it to have. And then asking the person to whom you're describing this new behavior, tell me what you think I'm asking you to do. It's very, very important in very difficult conversations to constantly check with the person who may be really offended by what you're saying. Uh, Well, you tell me what you think is going on. Now, this doesn't mean that if the person disagrees with you, you need to back off. Quite to the contrary. I stopped a teacher from hitting kids with a ruler, and it was never a matter of whether they needed to stop that. Uh, I've also seen staff who choked kids because they got very angry with them. And it doesn't mean when I said to them, What did you see going on that I didn't want them to stop choking the kids or hitting the kids? It meant that I wanted to know, I wanted them to know that I thought it was important for me to know what they thought was going on. Doing that kind of active listening process can make those kinds of conversations a lot easier. And then agreeing after a certain period of time, it may be a couple of days, it may be a couple of weeks to say, let's sit down and talk about what you've tried to change in the way you're doing things, that says to somebody you're not just interested in firing them, you're interested in doing, getting them to improve. Uh, one of the things, for example, that I think that is most lacking in teacher evaluation systems is that kind of feedback, number one, and number two, people seeing it as something other than polio or the bubonic plague. Uh, because they tend to see it as being very negative. One of the things we need to do, for example, is to take very effective teachers and say, hey, you're doing a great job. You may want to look at these things and look at how you could tweak those. Or you, why don't you tell me what you'd really like to work on and let's talk about how you could do that.
0: You know, that's that's really great advice and I appreciate you you sharing all that. It's so easy to let our personal feelings um, about that person as a human being or our friendship with them get in the way of correcting them appropriately. And, you know, I've, I've had to have many of those conversations. And when I've done the things that you are suggesting, then it's been successful and people, you know, they grow from it. Um, And when I don't do the things you're suggesting, especially giving them replacement behaviors for what they're doing, I don't think that most people do those things because they hate kids or anything like that. They do those things because they think it's the best thing for the kids and they just don't know a better way. And I I don't think people get into education to intentionally hurt children and sometimes they do because they don't know something better. So giving, giving them coaching and help and over time still supporting them and becoming better. Those are, those are really important for them to, to be successful. So I really appreciate you sharing that.
1: Well, and I think with that goes a corollary, which is, that some people say, well, you've been to teacher school, or you've been to principal school, or you've been to superintendent school, and you should know better. My philosophy evolved to, I don't assume anything. I watch, I try to look at what a person's actually doing, regardless of their preparation, and say, all right, here's what you're doing, or here's what I think you're doing. Now, let's talk about how it can be done differently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Nick, I really appreciate your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like I have about a million more questions, but I want to respect your time and maybe we can do another follow-up conversation later. But the sure. last question that I ask every every person on the podcast is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you?
1: I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is transformative to do what? What are you really trying to get done? If you were to describe what you're trying to accomplish, the first thing is to describe what's happening right now in your school. What are people doing that you like? What are things, people doing that you would like to see done differently? And I think it's very important to think through how you frame things. If you say you're wrong or you're terrible or you're horrible or you're a failure, people are like, likely to turn on the off switch right away. If on the other hand you take a positive view and look at how you can improve things people are likely to take a much more a much more positive view of what you're saying so define first what you're trying to accomplish define next how you what you perceive happening in your building get a sense of how the people you're working with perceive what's happening and then start to talk about what the difference is between what people are doing and what you like to see them do differently. If I can, let me just give you one example.
0: Please, thank you.
1: I worked with a high school that was pretty dramatically underperforming and was perceived as unsafe. And what I do in situations like that is I like to go out and walk the hallways and go out into the cafeteria or the parking lots and just see how kids or what kids are doing. And what I saw was a lack of adult contact with the kids. There were certain people who were designated to be the behavior people. And frankly, in a a large high school in particular, there's no way you can have enough principals or behavior specialists to just deal with the kids. If you're going to have a safe school, everybody needs to be involved. So one of the things I said to people is, I would really like you to be out in the hallways when people are moving and just say hello to kids or, and if you don't know the kids get to know their names, because when you're trying to stop inappropriate behavior, it's much more effective to say, Hey, Mary, Hey, John. And the kids say, whoops, this person knows who I am. So it's thinking through in terms of a transformation, what you're trying to accomplish, what people see going on now and what it will take to get from point A to point B, and if you're successful, what will happen differently, and how do you measure it? Because too often I believe that a real frustration in teaching is that if you were to ask a teacher what happened that was good, they might say, ah, not much. If you ask them who drove you nuts today, they could give you a five-hour lecture. So what is important is to get people to see what they're doing well to get people to understand how they can improve and then to see what the benefit will be to them purposely. One of the most important things in teaching is that given that it's a very giving profession, people need to have a sense of accomplishment. They really need to understand what they're getting done. And they may have five kids out of a class of 20 or 30 that's driving them nuts. But the balance of those kids, the other 15 kids or the other 25 kids may well be doing just fine. But they may not realize what it is they're doing as a professional that's enabling those kids to do just fine. And part of our job as change people is to help people understand that so that they feel a sense of success so that the kids can feel a sense of success.
0: Wow. Powerful stuff, Nick. I am I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for your, for your time today.
1: Glad to do it.
0: After finishing that interview, I was just so inspired and excited, and you may have heard him on the Transformative Leadership Summit, and if you haven't, make sure you go check that out at transformativeleadershipsummit.com. It's not too late to be part of that, and uh, really inspiring speakers that were there. So thank you so much for listening, and have a great week. Transformative Principles is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcast for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts.